This morning we're gonna talk from Daniel chapter six about the matter of civil disobedience. One of the most famous documents from the civil rights era of the 1960s is the letter from the Birmingham jail written by Martin Luther King Jr. in April of 1963. The letter was written after King had been arrested for protesting without a permit against the segregation laws of the city of Birmingham, Alabama. This was the unsightly era of American history where bathrooms, restaurants, and schools were segregated. For children, that means that black people couldn't eat in the same restaurants as white people. It means that black people couldn't use the same bathrooms as white people. It means that they couldn't go to the same schools as white people. During this era, only 60 years ago, all kinds of methods were used to keep African Americans from being registered voters. In so doing, causing the legislative and judicial systems to be the protectorate of institutional racism. So from the jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama, Martin Luther King wrote an open letter to the Birmingham clergy who had published an essay in the local paper calling for an end to the protests and a call for unity. He wrote the letter on scraps of newspaper and eventually it was published in a series of national magazines in June of that same year. The letter from the Birmingham jail has become a hallmark in terms of its argument for the civil rights cause and a defense of civil disobedience. I'm gonna to read to you a cutting from that letter with the hopes of giving you a taste of the content in hopes that you'll read it on your own. If you've not read it, you need to. But also, I want you to notice, and the reason why I'm reading it is because the book of Daniel is present in the argument. Here's what he wrote. An unjust law is a code inflicted upon a minority which that minority had no part in enacting or creating because it did not have the unhampered right to vote. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama which set up the segregation laws was democratically elected? Throughout the state of Alabama, all types of conniving methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. And there are some counties without a single Negro registered to vote, despite the fact that Negroes constitute a majority of that population. Can any law set up in such a state be considered democratically structured? These are just a few examples of unjust and just laws. There are some instances when a law is just on its face and unjust in its application. For instance, I was arrested Friday on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there's nothing wrong with an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade, but when the ordinance is used to preserve segregation and to deny citizens the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and peaceful protest, then it becomes unjust. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen sublimely 
in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a higher moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. It's a cutting from the letter in Birmingham jail. So Martin Luther King Jr. applied the force of his argument about civil disobedience by appealing to the book of Daniel as an example of what it means to obey a higher moral law. So the biblical record of Daniel and his three friends provided courage and even a model how to stand, and for that matter, how to suffer when it becomes necessary to disobey the law of the land. Today is the last message on Daniel 1 to 6, and what I want to try and do today is to help you think about how to live differently in a world where you may be called to obey God rather than man. I want to help you consider both when and how you might dare to suffer. I want you to think about this category of civil disobedience because it seems to me that it's only a matter of time until some of us will face very real decisions that fall into this category and I want to try and help you or at least start to help you think through the dynamics of the culture in which we live. Now let me offer a very important qualifier. Navigating the decision about what line to draw, what law to obey or disobey is not always easy, simple, or straightforward. There are, there are nuances, there are options, there are implications, all of what, which needs to be weighed. As well, there's matters of personal conscience that factor into this discussion as believers try and decide what is God calling them to do, what's he not calling them to do. This is where living differently in the world is challenging, where it's loaded. This is also why the church is so important, because we need to be able to help one another, to be able to navigate this complicated nuance of culture, and what does it mean to follow Jesus with conviction and love? What does it mean to follow Jesus with wisdom and prudence? What does it mean to take action or simply to trust the Lord and pray? So I just want you to know I am not going to answer all your questions today about how to apply this message. And I know for some of you that's, that's very hard at times. I have, I have folks that every once in a while come up to me and say, would you just tell me what to do? And the reality is you don't want me to do that. You really, I don't want to do that. You don't, I, I will do that when necessary, when the Bible is very clear, but there are many other things in life where my role is not to tell you what to think, it's to try and teach you how to think. So that when the complicated nuances of life come, that you together with your small group or your group of people can get on your face and say, what do we do? Is this the moment? Is this the line? Daniel 6 is the biblical account of Daniel's disobedience to the king's law. It's the last in a series of stories that are designed to show God's supremacy over powerful kingdoms and nations. 
What we find is that Daniel is in the intersection between God's laws and man's laws, and Daniel is stuck right in the middle, trying to discern how does he live in Babylon without Babylon living in him. So what I want to do is walk through the text, and as we go along, make some specific applications to this matter of civil disobedience. First, we see in the first nine verses that Daniel is a righteous man who lives in the midst of a host of unrighteousness. He distinguishes himself as a righteous man in the midst of unrighteous people with all kinds of unrighteous actions. Chapter six, verse one. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. So Darius sets up this system that there's gonna be 120 rulers who are gonna give guidance to the region of Babylon. Darius the Mede was likely a subordinate of King Cyrus. Darius is ruling Babylon. He has these deputies that are attempting to do his bidding. Verse two tells us that over them three officials, so you have 120, then you have three, sort of serving like a cabinet, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give account so the king might suffer no loss. So their goal was to preserve the king's interests in Babylon, likely military interests and economic interests. The text goes on, tells us in verse three, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king intended, in order to set or plan to set him over the whole kingdom. So there's 120 deputies, you have three rulers that emerge, of one of which was Daniel, and the intention because of what the king saw in Daniel was to set him over really the entire kingdom. So Daniel is about to be promoted to the vice presidency, if you will, of the country. Interesting, isn't it, that Daniel here is described as being distinguished? Once again, we see this man's godliness emerge so clearly. You'll find this in other places in the Bible, that God's hand is on particular men and women. We find that Abraham, Joseph, David, and Hezekiah are all described as the Lord was with him. No matter where they went, no matter what scenario they were in, God's favor, God's hand was on them. Or think of Noah or Enoch, people who are described as walking with God. There's something about these kind of people that set them apart from the culture that's around them. They refuse to let Babylon live in them, refuse to let the world live in them. Instead, they choose to follow God in their generation. God's favor was upon them. I wonder, as God looks down on us today, how many of us could that be said of? That we're distinguished from the rest of culture. Could that be said of you by virtue of your godliness at at your workplace? Are, Are you known as somebody who walks With grace, a person who's marked by obedience to Christ? Is there something uniquely Christian about you that your neighbors and the people that you engage with, that they see? 
Don't miss the fact that Daniel is one of these kind of people who continues to follow God in his generation, and whether he's serving the king of Babylon or whether he's serving the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or Darius, Daniel consistently pursues a godly life. Verse 4, a plot develops against Daniel. These leaders develop a jealous heart towards him, There may have been some kind of malfeasance that was happening, and they knew, perhaps, that when Daniel got to this particular position that he would have authority to deal with their maybe unethical behaviors. The high officials and the satraps, verse 4, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But notice, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. It's amazing, isn't it? Daniel lived such a godly life that when they looked at his career, when they looked at how he followed and, and, and served the, the, the king, that there was nothing that they could grab a hold of. And so, Instead, verse 5, they develop a plot. We shall find, they say, no, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So the only thing that they could then use against Daniel was his obedience to God. What an amazing and convicting statement. What's remarkable is that one of the first places that opponents of the gospel will go after is your character. If they can validate their belief of your inconsistency and your hypocrisy, then it removes the credibility of what you say and what you believe in. And yet Daniel is the kind of man and the kind of leader who could only be charged with being godly. Oh, for more people like him. In verses 6 to 9, we see the specifics of the plot. It, It plays right into Daniel's spirituality and his righteousness, and it also plays right into Darius's pride. The entire court, the high officials, the satraps, they suggest that the king should make an ordinance And that ordinance, according to verse 8, is whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king probably viewed this edict as a way to unite his kingdom, as a way to position himself as the mediator between his people and their gods, and as well, it must have stoked his ego to have all of his cabinet come in and say, king, we got an idea. We don't want anyone to pray to anything else except for you for 30 days. Probably couldn't find a pen to sign that document fast enough. So what we see is Daniel is distinguished. He lives righteously in the midst of an unrighteous culture. If we take a step back from the story for a moment, some applications that we can make right out of the gate. The first is this. Romans 13 tells us that a believer's a follower of Jesus, their, their normative position as it relates to authority should be one of joyful and respectful submission. Romans 13 tells us that authority is a gift from God, something that he's given to the earth as a matter of common grace. 
and that believers are to see those authority structures as those that are been given by God for the common good of humanity. It means that we are to see beyond the authority and to see God's reign over all things. It means that whether it's the government or whether it's your boss, that we are to obey as unto the Lord, that we look through the government and through the boss and through the corporate structure, and we realize there is something else that's in play here as it relates to the reign of Christ. Of course, there are limits to our obedience. We must obey God rather than man. But if I could just say a word, those moments when we must obey God rather than man, they're real and they do come. But sometimes I hear people use that verse and develop a little bit of a theological chip on their shoulder as though respecting authority, even sinful authority, is not important. So you may disagree with the person who's in office, you may not like your boss's leadership style, but parents, grandparents, Can I just caution you that your children pick up a tone as it relates authority by virtue of how you view authority? And some of you honestly have never gotten over your rebellious authority problem as a teenager. You've just changed it and it shifted and it's now become a boss or the government or something else. And the reality is the posture of the believer needs to be thankful for authorities, pray for authorities, and obey authorities as much as I possibly can, at the same time recognizing that this authority is not ultimate, and there does come a point in time when we have to obey God rather than man. But the normative position of a believer needs to be one of respectful and joyful submission. Secondly, this text from the very beginning, helps us to understand the kind of person that Daniel was. And we ought to strive to be the kind of people whose lives make us worthy candidates for future opportunities to serve the Lord, perhaps even future opportunities to draw a line in the sand and to take a stand. But here's my question, would your godliness stand the test of this kind of persecution? Or in other words, can God shine a spotlight on your life and have the testimony of Christ stand? Or would you not even be qualified for that kind of intense focus? Can God entrust you with that kind of spotlight? You see, what Daniel did is he made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of right decisions all the way up to this this single defining moment. But this single defining moment was built on hundreds of other right decisions. So don't think for a moment that you're gonna take a stand when it really matters if you don't take a stand in the small areas that nobody sees. Third, despite living a righteous life, It's interesting how unrighteous people are gonna act in an unrighteous manner. They're gonna act in a conniving way and that ought not to surprise us. More often than not, godliness results in persecution. It results in disdain. Very, very infrequently does the world applaud or affirm righteousness. So don't be surprised when opposition comes. And finally, Daring to suffer involves some kind of ridiculous unfairness. And you're gonna see ridiculous unfairness in this story. The leaders were jealous, the king was proud, the law was foolish. And all these events converged to create an, an undesired opportunity. And moments like this, when you have to draw a line, moments where we're called to suffer are rarely convenient and they are very rarely reasonable. 
So you may need just to get over how inconvenient and unreasonable this is and embrace the fact it's time that I've been called to suffer. So Daniel helps us to see what, it's, what it looks like in one situation for a man to be righteous in the midst of a culture of unrighteousness. Here's the second thing. We see Daniel's obedience through disobedience. Verse 10 is really important. It says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he has done previously. So there's a number of things to note here. There's a bunch of stuff in verse 10 that you probably didn't realize. I didn't realize it, so I started to unpack this. The first is this, is that Daniel did not do what many others would have done. There was no angry response. There was no loud protestation. There was no call for some type of power play. Realize this is a guy who has political power. He's almost number two in the entire country. Notice there's no petition. There's no boycott on Facebook. There's no uproar. Neither is there any appeal to the king for redress. There's no request for an audience with the king to change his mind. Instead, Daniel simply goes home, opens his window, gets on his knees, and prays like he has always done. Secondly, you should not consider Daniel's prayer time to be something he intended to be private. Daniel's actions were a defiant act, a public act of disobedience. He could have prayed when no one was looking. He could have prayed in such a way that no one knew that he was praying. But instead, he chose to pray in a way that made his disobedience public. His public display of prayer was a way of obeying God rather than man. He didn't have to pray by his windows. He didn't have to pray in his upper chamber, but he did. Daniel's prayer was defiant. Third, Praying three times a day toward Jerusalem was not directly commanded by God. There was no explicit command for Daniel to pray where he did, when he did, or how often he did. Certainly there was a command for Daniel not to pray to Darius. But Daniel's actions, the expression of his obedience, the expression of his defiance, were unique to Daniel. So these observations are all important because this is the unique way that Daniel, in his context and in his own manner, drew a line. In other moments in biblical and world history, people did make appeals to the king. Laws were requested to be changed. Take, take Esther, for example, or disobedience that was perhaps less public and more tied to a direct command to not violate an aspect of Scripture. Think of the Hebrew midwives who privately refused to kill the Hebrew children. Now, the point of all of this is to recognize that there is no clear and easy formula for what requires civil disobedience and even what civil disobedience should look like. And this is why pastorally I'm leaning into this because for some of you, the island of marginal Christianity is shrinking, 
And you're gonna have to think very carefully like you've never thought before about when do I say I can't do this? When do I draw a line? And for some of you, your relationship with Christ, your spiritual maturity will not be able to handle that particular moment. You wanna be able to be in the world without anybody knowing, you wanna sort of just float along, and, and the reality is that opportunity, I, thankfully, I think, is getting more and more challenging. This requires us to think carefully. John Piper, in a message on Romans 13 regarding submission to the government, says this, under what conditions then might civil disobedience be morally called for? What one could say with the apostle Peter, obey God rather than man. In other words, if the law commands what God forbids or forbid what God commands, then you must break the law. The problem with that simple guideline is that much of the civil disobedience in history has involved doing things that are not clearly commanded by God. Sitting, for example, on the sidewalk in front of an abortion clinic in 1989 was not explicitly commanded by God in the Bible. Eating at a white-only restaurant in St. Augustine, Florida in 1964, marching and praying in Montgomery, Alabama in 1965 were not explicitly commanded in the Bible. In other words, some Christians have come to the point in history, some Christians have come to the point in history where they believed laws were so unjust and so evil and political means of change had been frustrated so long that peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience seemed right. So, Daniel 6 is helpful at one level because we're able to see what he chose to do in this particular situation. But I want you to be careful that you not limit civil disobedience to only what you see in Daniel chapter 6. Because deciding what issue requires what kind of response is never easy, and yet people within each generation have to decide which line will I draw. What laws could be broken? What laws should be broken? What company policies should be tolerated? What policies require your resignation? On what issues do you share your views? What if you have the opportunity to write the policies? How, what, what responsibility do you have? What about your responsibility in enforcing particular policies? And in what context do you share your views? And to whom do you share them? These are all the complicated nuances of what it means to try and live in the culture in a way that is faithful to the gospel, at the same time wise, and at the same time convictional. Those who follow Jesus must be willing to obey God rather than man, and we must do it in a way that honors the Lord. There's no question that those things are true, but determining why and when and how, that requires more than a proof text. It means you have to know your Bible, you have to know the culture, and you have to seek the Lord and ask yourself, is this the moment? Section continues in Daniel. They catch him in the act of praying, verse 11. They confront the king regarding Daniel's disobedience in verse 12. The leaders appeal to the principle of the laws of the Medes and Persians, which meant that a law once written couldn't be changed. They had facilitated their own jealousy. They trapped their king. They had used the system in order to collude with their evil desires. 
And there's even a hint of racism and a charge of insurrection in the text as they tell and remind the king that Daniel is of the exiles from Judah. There's the racist part, and they accuse him of paying no attention to the king. There's the insurrection part. And despite the king's distress and his desire to free Daniel, instead he chooses to save face with his leader's and sacrifice Daniel in the lion's den. So at this moment in the story, it seems as though the schemes of jealous men have worked. Regret and deliverance. In verse 16, the king summons Daniel, and he casts him into the den of lions. As the king does this, according to verse 16, he offers some sort of prayer. He says, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And then a stone is placed over the lion's den, and the king's seal is put upon it. This is always an interesting moment to me in the biblical record. I think of not only this seal, but of Pontius Pilate's word regarding the tomb of Christ. Make it as secure as you can. I wonder what God thinks of those statements. A little king and his seal. On a, the angels must look at that and go, Silly seal. <laughs> well, the king has a terrible night. Sleep left him. He's torn up in the inside. Look at verse 18. The king went to his palace. He spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled him. No doubt he's filled with regret. I'm sure his conscience was bothering him. And by the way, this is one of the potential effects of godly behavior and the right kind of civil disobedience, that it can bring an awakening of the conscience of culture or individuals. Even people who aren't religious can have a conscience awakening and realizing, you know, it's not right that we're putting Daniel in the lion's den. But in order for that to happen, it requires believers to choose to suffer. It requires for Christianity to play defense rather than offense, which I think, frankly, we play better over history. In verse 19, we see the king rushing to the lion's den to see if Daniel has been delivered. He apparently has some level of curious faith and he cries out, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions, in verse 20? Now, if I'm Daniel in the lion's den, I would have just been silent for about three minutes. <laughs> just waited. And then the king hears these words from Daniel. Oh, king, live forever. Is that what you would have said? It's not what I would have said. I would have said, why don't you come on down or your silly laws are nothing. This is an opportunity to be able to get yours. And Daniel doesn't. He reminds him that he's innocent. He reminds him that this deliverance is only to reinforce that God has been the one who is delivering Daniel. And so the king was exceedingly glad. He pulls Daniel out of the tomb, or out of the lion's den, rather, and orders that all of the accusers and their families should be given the punishment that they had designed for Daniel. And in this situation, justice was then served. Daniel's name means God is my judge. 
And in this moment, Daniel clearly had put his trust in God. Now, you need to know that not everyone is going to be delivered in the same fashion. You can't use Daniel 6 and say, see, everyone who's faithful to God is delivered from the lion's den. It's just not true. God, in his kindness and in his sovereignty, chose to deliver Daniel. But there's plenty of other people throughout church history that God chose not to deliver. But the fact remains, whether they were delivered or not, in every case, a believer can put their lives in the hands of a God who can be trusted. Look at 1 Peter 2. I want you to see this in your copy of God's Word, or I want you to have it marked in an electronic device. This is a really important verse. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might wonder, what's the motivation for a believer to act this way? Like, why would somebody respond kindly when they're being mistreated? Why would someone respond respectfully? Well, the answer essentially is that because of the grace of Christ, because we have been forgiven of all of our sins, because God has brought upon us unmerited favor, then as a result, we see the world through a different lens. And granted, Christians aren't perfect people, but fundamentally, something's been changed in them knowing that while they serve a king on earth or they serve a government on earth, their ultimate accountability is to a God who saved them from their sins because of the work of Christ. And when you see life through that lens, it changes everything, especially how you respond in suffering. At least it should. 1 Peter 2 says this, verse 20, the second half of the verse, if when you do good and suffer, for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Now, he, and now he's going to describe what, he's, what he did. And I'm telling you, like, I've had to use this verse many, many times in pastoral ministry, where unfair things have been said, and then how do you respond to that? You need to work this out in your own life as well. But this is a very important text. It says, regarding Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Here it comes. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. You know that temptation that someone says something about you, you're like, oh yeah, well what about you? Well what about you? What about your marriage? What about your kids? What about, what about how you act? How about what you say? You, you, you. There's a temptation, isn't there? No matter how old you are or how godly you are, there is this thing inside that when someone gets after you, you're like, well what about you? And when your boss says something or someone at work says something, there is a temptation to hit back and say, well yeah, well you know, and this text says when reviled, he didn't revile. Notice this, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. I mean, they're, they're taking on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords when he's suffering. He could have snapped his fingers, and all of them would have been wiped out instantaneously. They're, they're, they're spitting on him and mocking him, and yet Jesus, when he was suffering, didn't threaten. He didn't say to them, just wait till you guys see me on the other side. I got a big throne, a lot of angels, like you're toast. Like, he, you know, I mean, he didn't do any of that. He took it all upon himself, and the text says, why? Why did he do this? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's a revolutionary idea. 
My boss isn't going to justify me. The business isn't going to justify me. The corporation isn't going to justify me. This government is going to justify me. Ultimately, God is the one who's going to justify me. And if I have to rest my stake of my life in someone's account, I'm going to put that in God's account because at the end of the day, he's the one who's going to judge justly. And that provides freedom to respond in a way that is remarkably different. And by the way, we don't have time to unpack this. We'll do this in the fall and the first of the year. He then applies the same concept to wives, that if you have a disobedient husband, instead of, what do you do to reach a disobedient husband? Do you try nagging, complaining, pouting? Do you try all those things? First Peter 3 says that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Why? Because you entrust them into God's hands. Husbands, you don't get off the hook. Verse 7 says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Something going on in your wife's life, and you'd like to see it change, so you get critical, you get direct. You think, well, I can use the same tone that I use with people that work with my wife, because they listen to me, and then you're like, how come you don't listen to me? What you end up doing is having to entrust your wife's life to God's dealings. You treat her as a weaker vessel. You see, this idea of God-centeredness is all the way through the book of Daniel. It's all the way through the Bible. It's how we are to live in the midst of our world and culture, that at the end of the day that we live in and through the reality that God is our king and he is our judge, and we continue entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. You can let go of your anger. You can stop being bitter. You can stop being afraid and say, I'm going to trust in the one who judges justly. And I'm not going to revile. And I'm not going to threaten. In fact, on the contrary, when persecuted, I'm going to bless them. And when I am unfairly treated, I'm going to pray for them. And in so doing, the world looks at us And it's supposed to say, what in the world motivates you people? And the answer, the gospel. Story of Daniel then ends, back to Daniel chapter 6, with exaltation through suffering. It's remarkable, through Daniel's suffering, now people exult in God. Verse 25, King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and language that dwell in all the earth. And he said, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. By the way, Cyrus the Persian was the one who helped fund the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So everything about this book is designed to show us the beauty of God's supremacy. Daniel just happened to be in the nexus between God's supremacy and Darius' supremacy. He just happened to be in the spot where God wanted to use his life to say something significant to the world. So, Would you be a worthy candidate for that kind of assignment from the Lord? I know at at one level, none of us are worthy. But honestly, if the spotlight of God's 
suffering were to be shown on the earth, could he let it land on your life? Or at present, is there just not a sense of passion within you to to really follow after the Lord? Are your affections so tied to this earth that drawing any kind of line in any area is really difficult because you don't want to let go of your name, your job, your reputation, your career, the the affirmation of other people. Like all these things have all these holds on your heart. And could it be that maybe part of what God wants to have happen through Daniel chapter 6 is to begin on peeling those back and for us to really think, so where do my affections really lie? You see, the more costly it becomes to follow Jesus, the more clearly distinct our affections become. And it may be that as we think about this, you need to pray the prayer of David the psalmist when he said, oh God, unite my heart to fear your name because I don't know if I would be willing to draw a line right now. I might be comfortable just sort of coasting along and going in the flow of life and staying underneath the radar. I'm just telling you, I think that's gonna be harder and harder. And for that matter, do you have a community of people around you that can help you? Because the things that we're talking about here are complicated. The nuances of these things, you need wisdom. You need people to be able to speak into your life. You need people who know you well enough to be able to help you navigate the real challenges of our culture. This is a very difficult, and it's going to be increasingly difficult to try and be a solo Christian. You need people who can walk alongside you who can help you know, is this the moment, is this the line where I'm to obey God rather than man? See, the book of Daniel is meant to help us see the supremacy of God over powerful nations, powerful kingdoms, and rulers. It's a book that dares us to believe, to stand, to speak, and to suffer. It dares us to embrace the mindset of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, when he wrote, a mighty fortress is our God. And the final chorus, you know it, probably, goes like this. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And if you believe that, and if you love that, and if you cherish that, that when it comes to draw a line and to dare to suffer, you know how to navigate through that kind of moment. May God help us to dare to suffer. Let's pray. Father, I have no idea today the realities that my brothers and sisters face No doubt there's probably a few that are right in the middle of the very kind of scenario that Daniel was in the middle of Daniel chapter six, and I pray you'd give them wisdom to know if this is the moment and this is the line. God, others, you're preparing hearts for future moments to come. You're, You're asking us to figure out what it means to follow you in our generation, and I pray that 
Today you would increase our joy and our affections for you and then help us to make hundreds of right decisions to glorify Christ, glorify you, Jesus, in, in every way possible so that when the moment comes when you call us to obey God rather than man, that we'll not only be ready, but we'll be, we'll be the kind of people upon which you can platform your glory. So, Lord, give us grace. Help us to live in our world, but not to let the world live in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.